I have a favor to ask. Everyone who listens to these podcasts, I am asking that you would subscribe to the Gazette, our new digital magazine. It works on all devices and is guaranteed to give you hours of great entertainment. If you're listening to any of our podcasts, please go to oldtimeradiodvd.com and subscribe. Give it a few issues. If you don't like, simply unsubscribe. But I know that you're going to love the Gazette, oldtimeradiodvd.com to subscribe. You'll be glad you did. Dan found Nettie in a state of some agitation. She had just been proposed to by Captain Bolfas, Corporal Inchby Wiglet, Corporal Rintin Eaglebun, Corporal Buke Hammerdorf, his half-cousin by marriage, Corporal Buke Willie Nudgett, Buke Willie Nudgett's father, Corporal Gol Hollywell, the Yaskin Prime Minister, and several other Yaskins she did not actually know, on her way across the lawn. The Prime Minister had even given her a bottle of famous Yaskin scent. Only wear it for us Yaskins, my dear, he had said, and squeezed her bottom. When Dan caught up with her, Nettie was desperately looking for her handbag. God, you don't think anyone's stolen it, do you? I believe they don't have much crime here on Yassica, said Dan. Now, there's been all this organised crime since the economy went down the chute, said Nettie. But organised crime isn't going to bother to steal your handbag, Nettie. Dan was trying to be reassuring. I've got to find it, exclaimed Nettie. Her eyes were blazing just a few inches away from Dan's. Dan's knees suddenly relaxed their grip on the standing-up situation, and he had to sit down on the nearest tree stump. Great grief, that wonderful scent you're wearing. The prime groper of Yassica just gave it to me, in more ways than one, replied Nettie. Nettie, I... Dan didn't really have a clue what he wanted to say. It was as if the scent had wrapped itself around him and wouldn't let go until he told her the truth. What? Nettie was back searching a pile of clothes that various people had dumped over a bed that was standing on the veranda of Corporal Gull Hollywell's house. Nettie, I... I think I... I'm crazy about you. Dan didn't know quite how it happened, but suddenly he had his arms around Nettie's waist and was kissing the back of her neck. Nettie spun round. Stop that, she cried. Dan backed off. You're getting married to Lucy. You're going to start a hotel. You're going to have kids and all that sort of thing. Everything's changed, said Dan. We can't go back to Earth. It's all different here. And he tried to put his arms around her again, but Nettie backed away. Now, hold on, Romeo, said Nettie. I'm not an emotional doormat for your convenience. Besides, you're going back to Earth. We're all going back to Earth, I hope, just as soon as I find my handbag. What have you got in your handbag? A Concorde ticket home? A pocket rocket? Dan didn't doubt for a moment that Nettie had the solution, if she said she had. He knew that if any one of them had the brains to get them back again, it would be Nettie. He worshipped her. He admired her. But why couldn't he tell her properly, instead of behaving like a sex-crazed half-wit? Let's just find it, shall we, said Nettie. So Dan stopped asking questions and put his mind to looking for the handbag. I'm sorry, are, are you looking for this? Corporal Gol Hollywell was holding up Nettie's handbag. Nettie grabbed it, opened it, and started feverishly rummaging through it. Dan looked at Corporal Gol Hollywell. Nettie's got something in it that will help us get back to Earth. He hoped Nettie wouldn't hear how like a sex-crazed half-wit he sounded. Would it be these? Corporal Gol Hollywell held up a package neatly wrapped in a broad leaf. Nettie snatched it from him, checked its contents, and then looked up at the corporal. What the blazes do you mean by taking things out of my handbag? 
Corporal Gull Hollywell felt himself disintegrate and splatter all over the veranda. He looked genuinely taken aback. Oh dear, he said, have I done something contrary to your earth customs? On Yassica it is traditional for the host to go through his guests' handbags and do little repairs and mending jobs on the contents. Well, it's not an earth custom, said Nettie, still furious. But, well, thanks for developing the film for me. That's exactly what I was looking for. It was my pleasure, said Corporal Gull Hollywell, gazing adoringly at Nettie. Most of the photos seem to have come out okay. I also re-electroplated your nail scissors, restored several missing teeth to your comb, and re-silvered your little mirror. Why, thank you so much, Corporal. Nettie had regained her composure and was searching through the photographs that Gull Hollywell had developed. Then suddenly she found what she was looking for. Here, look, Dan, it's the rectory. They came out. Those long exposures I took, they came out! Dan felt he was a bit out of his depth, but he just said without enthusiasm, Oh, good, it'll be nice to have a souvenir. Nettie, however, had already spun round and run off towards a group of Yassicans who were talking gloomily over the roasting snork. Rodden, Nettie called out, and the navigational officer turned around. Rodden, I've got it. You can get us back to Earth. Nettie thrust two of the photographs into his hands. He took them unwillingly, not wishing to get involved in any fantasy that this alien female may have concocted. Well, cried Nettie, hardly able to contain her excitement, look at them. What do you see? Rodden reluctantly looked down at the photos in his hand and studied them. It's a house on Earth, I assume, he said slowly. A former rectory, by the look of it, with planning permission for commercial use. That's amazing, exclaimed Nettie. How do you know all that? The navigational officer smiled smugly as he took off his translator specs and said, It's written on the estate agent's board. He loved baffling beautiful but not too bright females. Oh, right. Anyway, it's the place Dan and Lucy were going to buy before your starship smashed into it. So? Rodden was suddenly looking at them with increasing attention. How do you suppose these will help you? I, I took them at night, cried Nettie excitedly. Look at the sky, especially that one. There, look. A broad smile suddenly creased across Rodden's face. You can see the stars, cried Nettie. My dear young woman, said Rodden, you must forgive me for underestimating your... Easy over on the flattery, replied Nettie. I don't mind what you thought. The main thing is, can you get any coordinates on those star patterns that will show where Earth is? Are there enough stars in the shot? Rodden was silent for some time. Nettie watched him anxiously, and suddenly Dan, who had just joined them, found Nettie's hand in his, and she was squeezing it. Rodden stared and stared at the photo. Finally he looked up. Theoretically, he said, it should be a simple question of three-dimensional geometry. There is only one place in the galaxy in which the stars will appear in that exact configuration, but I'm not sure this photo will provide enough information. The Earth folk's hearts sank. The navigational officer was clearly trying to let them down gently. Nettie cursed herself. She had allowed her hopes to get too high. She was always doing that, especially with her men. But, the navigational officer was continuing, I think I could enhance the image. Do you have the negative? It's here, shouted Corporal Gull Hollywell. Then let's see what we can do, said Rodden. And with that, the party suddenly started to seem more cheerful for everybody concerned. It took two Dormillion days to run the enhanced photos of the night sky on Earth through the great astronomical computer at the University of Yasakanda.
the computer went through fifteen trillion billion five hundred thousand million seven thousand four hundred and sixty-nine different comparisons before it finally came up with a star configuration that matched. It was on an outer spiral arm of the galaxy in a sector that, quite frankly, had always been assumed to be uninhabitable. Alas, said Rodden, the navigational officer, it will take a long time to reach such a distant place. Nettie still had hold of Dan's hand. It seemed to Dan that she had permanently held on to his hand since that first discovery of the photos. Of course, she hadn't, but it was just that Dan only counted himself alive at those moments when she had. But he daren't say anything more to her. He would never use her as an emotional doormat. She could be sure of that. We've only got four more million days before the bomb goes off, Nettie said. How long will it take us to get to Earth? Rodden paused before he spoke. He wanted to be exact. He didn't want to raise forlorn hopes in anyone, least of all himself. Finally, he said, to get to such a remote location would take three dormillion weeks at best. Nettie leaned her head against Dan's shoulder and burst into tears. It was just too much. The thin edge of hope upon which she had been balancing for the last two days had suddenly given way. Dan put his arm around her and felt the softness of her shoulders. Nettie, he said, you'll be all right. You'll make a life here. Yasuka is beautiful. As beautiful as you, he wanted to add, but thought better of it. Nettie, meanwhile, held on to Dan's arm as if it were her life belt. However, continued Rodden, the starship Titanic is propelled by a totally new and immeasurably more powerful drive. Judging by the time that elapsed since the launch, the crash on Earth, and the time when we picked you up, I would say the starship must be capable of reaching the Earth in perhaps three dormillion days. Was it good news or bad news? Three dormillion days. That would give them barely one day on Earth to find Leovinus, and then, assuming he still had it in his possession, get the missing Central Intelligence Corps back into Titania's brain. The only thing that was certain was that they must start now. The first problem, however, was to find Lucy. After her last conversation with Dan, Lucy had been considering her life. She had slipped into a silky Yasakan shift and gone for a long walk along the beach at Yasakanda. The red waves beating on the blue shore made the same reassuring sounds that the waves made back home in Topanga. But somehow the comfort it brought her didn't make her long for home. Something had changed inside her. Something had died. Something had grown. Lucy was just trying to decide what it was when Nettie found her. Lucy, they've got the coordinates of Earth. We're going home, but we've got to hurry. Nettie had never been one to beat about the bush. By the way, you look great in that. Thanks, but Lucy was gazing out across the unfamiliar seascape. I'm going to stay here, she said. What on earth are you talking about, exclaimed Nettie. We can go home. Ah, I don't know where my home is anymore, said Lucy. L.A., London, Oxfordshire. I used to think it was anywhere Dan was, but now. What's the matter between you and Dan? Nettie was genuinely concerned for them, and had been ever since Dan's inexplicable behaviour when she'd been looking for her handbag. Neither of us wanted the rectory, Lucy turned and looked at Nettie for the first time. What? exclaimed Nettie. It's as simple as that. We must have been fooling each other for years, about all sorts of things. You know, I was originally in love with Nigel. Lucy was letting the sea wash around her bare feet. Ah, till you realise what a shit he was, asked Nettie. Not quite. It was more like, how can I describe it? Nigel was English, different, exciting. 
He made me feel all goose pimples inside. It was unsettling, whereas Dan I could understand. Dan was familiar territory where I knew where I was. Oh, but Dan's gorgeous, exclaimed Nettie. He's so exciting, so different from the rest of them, from creeps like Nigel. Lucy looked at Nettie in frank surprise. Oh, I'm sorry, Nettie continued. I, I shouldn't talk about Dan like that. I, I didn't mean anything. Anyway, we've got to hurry. Hurry away. Run off. I've always done that, Nettie. I've wrapped my emotions up in a nice, smart, pin-striped suit and then walked away from them. Well, I'm not doing it any longer. But Dan needs you, Lucy. You're a great team. That's what we kept telling each other. We told each other that over and over again until we believed it. But all I know is that I'm a different woman from the woman I've been pretending to be. Lucy! Lucy and Nettie spun round. They hadn't heard anyone approaching. Lucy, the starship's about to take off for Earth! It was the journalist shouting from the breakwater. We've only got a few minutes to make it! We? murmured Lucy. Of course, exclaimed the journalist. You don't think I'd let you go back on your own? Not now you've said you'll marry me. But the, I'll stay with you here if you want me to. Lucy had run up to him and was kissing him. Uh-uh, said the journalist. I've got to see this thing through to the end. And suddenly the three of them were racing along the sands towards the spaceport. The journey back to Earth in the starship Titanic was pretty uneventful for the first 117 million million miles. The desk bot was just as snooty as always, but since Lucy, Nettie, Dan and the journalist were travelling first class, VIP status, all the other bots were unbelievably obsequious. The lift bots gave Dan a surprising account of the Dunkirk evacuation, which made it sound like a great victory for the Allied forces, and the desk bot asked for Nettie's autograph. Nobody was quite sure why, until they overheard the desk bot whisper to one of the doorbots, That's Gloria Stanley, the actress, you know. But otherwise, routine life aboard the ship ticked on. Captain Bolfast put a brave face on his hopeless passion for Nettie, and yet, as he told his wife, it had at least given some purpose to his old age, even if that purpose were just to get over it. Nettie, for her part, was mainly concerned for Dan, he seemed to be taking his separation from Lucy and her wild affair with the journalist rather badly. He mostly kept to his cabin, and when he ate with them, he was generally silent and morose. Poor Dan, Nettie thought to herself. He must be going through hell. After all, he and Lucy have been so close for all those years, and now to see her so besotted with another man, and an alien at that. Lucy and the journalist also mostly kept to their cabin, but judging from the sounds emanating from behind their closed door, they were not brooding about anything. It sounded as if they might have been playing polo or doing a bit of water skiing, all mixed in with some pretty serious weightlifting. All in all, it was lucky the staterooms on either side were empty. Even as it was, several pictures fell off the adjoining walls, and a stand bearing a pot of yassican lilies mysteriously toppled over. On the third day, the great starship moved into the region of space beyond Proxima Centauri. We should locate your star any minute. Uh, what do you call it? asked Captain Bolfas. The sun, said Nettie. What a beautiful name, said the gallant captain, gazing at Nettie's exquisite profile. Nettie nodded. It's a beautiful thing. Mmm, agreed the captain dreamily. Do you recognize any of the star patterns yet? asked the navigational officer anxiously. It was all very well heading for an unknown destination with such scanty data. But in this case, they were all aboard a ship that was destined to explode within two days' time. 
The whole venture was crazy as far as he was concerned, and he had expressed his opinion quite forcibly to Captain Bolfas. Supposing they failed to find Earth, would they ever find anywhere to land in this remote armpit of the galaxy? And even if they did, once the ship had exploded, they would be marooned for, well, goodness knows how long it would take a rescue fleet to arrive. Nettie shook her head. I'm not much good at astronomy. I'll get the others up on deck. But neither Dan nor Lucy had any more idea than Nettie about the local constellations, and Rodden shook his head wearily at the Earth folk's ignorance. Perhaps you can't see the stars from the surface of your planet, he offered. But they had to admit they could and felt twice as stupid. But worse was to come. Look, Rodden suddenly exclaimed. Do you see that star there? That must be your sun. And so it proved to be. Within the hour, the starship was slowing down, and they could clearly see the sun as a tiny disk. And so, which of its planets is the Earth? It was a simple question Rodden had asked, but it threw the three Earth folk into utter confusion. I think it's the fourth planet from the sun, ventured Dan. Or is it the third? asked Nettie. It's the second, said Lucy. The navigational officer had to excuse himself at this point. He left the bridge and locked himself in the washroom, where he proceeded to bang his head against the sink unit for several minutes. How could any living creatures be so utterly and abysmally ignorant of their own planet? Look, said Dan, on the outside, Pluto, right? Yes. Neptune, Saturn, or is it Jupiter next? Saturn, said Nettie. Saturn, Jupiter, Mars, Earth. So it's the sixth planet in. Very good, exclaimed Captain Bolfas. Then we are approaching it at this very moment. Stand by to fire retardation rockets and stabilize ship for slowdown. Orbit around Earth to be established in 35 Edo's time. Landing by small landing craft. By the time the navigational officer came out of the washroom, the starship Titanic was in orbit around Earth. Do the starship windows make everything look red? asked Nettie. Maybe it's the weather, said Lucy. The Earth did look extremely red. Ladies and gentlemen, said Captain Bolfas, it is my privilege to accompany you down to your landing craft, if you would follow me. Hang on, said Nettie, we forgot Uranus. This is Mars. The navigational officer left the room again. He could feel one of those terrible Yassican rages overtaking him. In the washroom, he got out his SD gun and blew his own head off, after which he calmed down and returned to the bridge. By this time, they were approaching a blue planet, patched with brown and flecked with white whirls. It was definitely Earth. Even old Rodden couldn't help feeling sympathetically towards the three Earth folk, as he saw their spirits rise and their hearts beat with pride and wonder at this vision of the planet that had given them birth. As they assembled in the tiny landing spacecraft, Bolfas spoke briefly and unemotionally. We have been assuming we have exactly one day in which to find Leovinus, and hopefully the Titanic's missing Central Intelligence Corps, and get it back to the ship and into Titania's brain. But we have less than that. I did not mention this before, but I have to now. We only have half a day, since, if you have not returned by midday, we will have no option but to fly the starship off to a safe distance and man the lifeboats before she explodes. May we all be saved from such a fate. Go, and good luck. Nettie took Dan's hand as he helped her into the landing craft. The journalist jumped in beside Lucy. Oh, Dan, he said, there's something I've been meaning to ask you. Well, go ahead. Will you be our best man? Dan thought about hitting the journalist, but instead he smiled. Yes, he replied, I'll be glad to. Great, smiled the journalist. We can have a real Blerontinian white wedding. You'll love it.
Dan raised his eyes heavenwards, and Nettie smiled as the cover of the landing craft was placed over them. Captain Bolfast retreated to the viewing chamber. The side of the great starship opened, and the tiny landing craft blasted itself away towards the blue planet. Leovinus was not in a good mood. Despite all the things he was good at, astrophysics, architecture, molecular biology, geophysics, painting, sculpture, mechanical design, physics, anatomy, music, poetry, crystallography, thermodynamics, electromagnetism, philosophy and canopy arrangement, he'd always been hopeless at languages. Consequently, when he found himself on an alien world without a translation blister, he was understandably frustrated. Here he was, the greatest genius the galaxy had ever known, and he couldn't even ask these aliens in their strange blue suits for a cup of tea. I definitely think he is, Sarge, said Constable Hackett. What, gay? asked Sergeant Stroud, who'd noticed the old man's eyebrows were stuck on with toupee tape. No, Lebanese, said the constable. Do we know anyone in the Oxford area who speaks Lebanese? Well, it's kind of Arabic, isn't it? Yes, must be plenty of them at the university. And so a call was made, and Leovinus shortly found himself confronted by a large man with a nose the shape of Africa, who told him in Arabic that his name was Professor Dansak, but to no avail. Leovinus was beginning to lose his temper by now. Not only was no one treating him as you would expect a race of clearly inferior minds to treat the greatest genius the galaxy has ever known, but everyone was treating him as if they actually wanted to get rid of him. I hereby charge you with being an illegal immigrant. Sergeant Stroud was reading from a formal charge sheet. I have to warn you that anything you may say will be held against you, and that you will be held in a place of custody until such time as Her Majesty's government is able to repatriate you to your own country. Assuming we can find out where that is, muttered Constable Hackett. Professor Dansack had recommended a Professor Lindstrom, who held the chair in linguistic studies. Professor Lindstrom listened carefully to the little that Leovinus was prepared to say to him, and concluded that the elderly gentleman in the white beard and false eyebrows was probably making the language up. It bears no resemblance to any of the Indo-European branch of languages, said Professor Lindstrom, if indeed it is a language. I am prepared to state categorically that it has no relation to Uralic, Altaic, or to the Sino-Tibetan language groups. Malayo-Polynesian is not my field, but I would be surprised if it had any affinity there. As for the Eskimo-Alit and the Paleo-Asiatic, I am convinced it is not. I suspect, in short, gentlemen, that you have here a confused old gentleman talking that widely spoken language, gobbledygook. He probably ought to be with his family at home or else being cared for in an institution. Leovinus, at this point, had decided to treat these inferior beings to a recitation of edited highlights from his recent work, The Laws of Physics, a radical reappraisal of the subject which had turned the entire science on its head. It was, perhaps, the single most important volume ever written in the galaxy, and merely to hear it again gave the great man a sense of belonging, and reminded him that he was an individual of immense importance, no matter how they treated him on this remote and primitive planet. He was still reciting from his tenth law of thermodynamic stress when Sergeant Stroud banged the door of his cell behind him. Leovinus looked around his new environment. His suspicion was that he was not in a hotel. Entry appeared to be regulated by a simple locking device, and defecation appeared to be in a bucket. 
what a savage world he had got himself stuck on. If only he'd regained consciousness before the starship crash landed, but he hadn't. After his fight with Scraliontis, he'd remained unconscious throughout the entire launch, the Smeth, spontaneous massive existence failure, and the crash landing on this godforsaken planet wherever it was. He'd only come to when that wretched journalist had unrolled him from the curtain. Thinking it was still the morning before the launch, and that Scraliontis must have returned home to gloat over his evil scheme, Leovinus had commandeered the service lift and charged off out of the starship, screaming for revenge. In the dark, he had failed to notice that he was no longer on the launch pad at Bloontis. It was not until he was a good distance from the ship that he heard the sound of the great power drive coming to life. He had spun round and watched his great masterpiece rise up into an alien night sky. It was at that moment that he realized he was stranded on an unknown, unidentifiable world. In a state of shock, Leovinus opened the door of a small vehicle he happened to find parked nearby and climbed in. The vehicle was, as it turned out, already occupied by a particularly dim-looking alien who nearly wet himself with terror when confronted by Leovinus. The great man himself was, for the first time in his life, unable to think of anything to say, aware that whatever he did say would not be understandable. He had therefore sat there without speaking and allowed the alien to drive him to the present building in which he found himself and which he was increasingly convinced was not a hotel. What a complete and absolute mess. For God's sake, I want to see a lawyer! Leovinus screamed at the top of his voice, and he rattled the bars of his cell in the time-honoured tradition. Sergeant Stroud looked at Constable Hackett, and they both shook their heads. He might be a harmless, confused old man, but as far as they were concerned, it looked better in the station log if he were an illegal immigrant. They'd score a few points with the Home Office if they could get him sent back to somewhere or other, maybe Chad or Zimbabwe. Lucy thrilled to the expert way the journalist brought the landing craft down in what had been the garden of the old rectory. In the darkness, the ruined house looked even more desolate than it had on that fateful night. Souvenir hunters had stripped it of everything movable, including loose bricks. The plan was to try and pick up Leovinus's trail, starting from the crash site. There was also the possibility that he might be still hanging around, hoping the starship would return. It was not a bad plan as such, but as Dan jumped out of the landing craft, a loudspeaker crackled across the old rectory lawns, and a blinding searchlight hit him full in the face. Put your hands above your heads. Do not make any sudden movements. You are surrounded by armed police. They had not reckoned on the Oxfordshire Constabulary, who, flushed with their recent success in capturing an illegal immigrant, had set up a permanent watch around the landing site. Dan instinctively did all the things the megaphone had told him not to do. He didn't put his hands above his head. He leapt very suddenly back into the landing craft and screamed, Hit it! The journalist fired the engine, and the small craft leapt into the air as a hail of gunfire exploded across the lawn. In a few seconds, the spacecraft had disappeared into the night, and the Oxfordshire police were left staring at the empty sward. Calm down, everyone! Nettie had taken over, although Lucy was contributing the most volubly to the discussion. Ah! Ah! She was choosing her words carefully. The journalist was concentrating on controlling the craft. Dan was shaking. Okay, continued Nettie. We've got twelve hours to find Leovinus. Our two chances are one, picking up his trail around here, and two, Nigel, 
Nigel? Dan's hackles were up. Could this wonderful woman still be thinking about that schmuck? He's the one person we know was here at the site when Leovinus walked off the ship. He may have seen him, may even know where he is. Nettie, you're a genius, said Dan. Ah! Oh! Lucy added. I suggest you and Lucy investigate around here, while the here drives me to London to find Nigel. Nettie had it all worked out. Within a few minutes, the landing craft had deposited Dan and Lucy in a quiet back lane near the hotel where they had been staying, and in another minute, Nettie and the journalist were heading for the M40.